The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. through all this. We love you, Lord. This is your word, your time. We pray all these things today in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, we are in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. If you have a bulletin, ignore the, we're not re-preaching last week's text, by the way. Uh, Sometimes when you go through Hebrews so much, you forget which chapter you're in, even though you've prepared it so much. So the bulletin says we're preaching Hebrews 9. The PowerPoint says we're preaching Hebrews 10. My notes say we're preaching Hebrews 10, so you will hang on for that. But we are in Hebrews chapter 10. If you're visiting with us or if it's been a minute since you've been with us, we are in a months-long study of the book of Hebrews. Outside of maybe four or five Sundays this year, we have pretty much been trucking through. And we have seen every week that Jesus is greater than, greater than everything, the angels. He's greater than Moses, the law, the old sacrifices. Uh, he, he came in the order of Melchizedek. He's, he's come now to chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews, and he's once again going to tell you that Jesus is greater than repeated sacrifices, repeated sacrifices. Well, Darren, didn't you talk about repeated sacrifices last week? Yes, we did. But guess what? He's going to see Jesus high and lifted up. If you were in Sunday school this morning and you muddled through, as we did, the story of Jehu and all that he was and all that he did, I pray this is a story that gives you gospel hope. Because in the midst of a crazy life that he lived, in all of our lives, Christ is king and he is king indeed. If you're able to stand this morning as we do to honor God's word, would you join me in standing as we read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Be reading out of the ESV. That's the same pew as the pew Bible. You're welcome to join us if you don't, or grab one of those Bibles if you don't have it as well. Thank you for being here. Let's read it together. This is God's word, not political commentary, not sports commentary, not the the Sunday funnies. This is the, the word of God. Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But, verse 3, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of the sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In a burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, verse 7, behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then verse 9, he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, verse 10, he has sanctified through the offering the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting, verse 13, from the time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness also to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then, verse 17, he adds, I'll remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Amen. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is loaded, but it is a, a, a section that if you're an underliner, I think you can see where this is going. The sacrifice is once and for all. It's done. It's completed. It's finished. That's where we land today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper just a little later in our service. Would you join me in praying this morning? May God bless our study. May he move me out of the way. May he move us out of the way. May his spirit may illuminate our hearts. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to you. Thank you once again that we can come to you. We celebrate the fact, Lord, that the scripture said that you remember our sins and lawless deeds no more. Father, you have written on our minds and on our hearts everything that was promised to us in Christ. Lord, forgive us when we forget it. Enthrall us today with nothing else than the love of Christ shed for us on that cross. And not only the cross, the burial and the resurrection and the coming again. Lord, we look forward to that day when all enemies are at your feet. But until such a day, may this be motivation by your spirit to live each day for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if any of you all have ever actually, has anyone ever actually been to see this in person? And Amy will put this up for us. The Mona Lisa, has anyone ever actually been in person? One person. Karen, I'm going to get your autograph afterwards. That's amazing. You all know this picture, whether you have seen it on TV or been there in person, you know what it is. It's the Mona Lisa. It was painted by Da Vinci of a young maiden, uh, a wife, uh, and she has folded hands, her smile's just right, and it seems like every Hollywood movie that you go to, somewhere along the line, this is taken. I believe Mr. Bean had a movie a long time ago, if you're into British humor, where he tried to stop the stealing of this itself. But can you imagine if someone came up to the Da Vinci painting and got through the red tape or security or lasers or guards or tanks, whatever they have in front of it these days, and takes a marker and says, you know, I think she would look better with a mustache. Or her hair just isn't quite right. Let me color it in just a little bit more. Well, before that person is dogpiled on and thrown into the abyss of a, of a, of a little underground dungeon somewhere, whatever, catacombs, that's the word I'm looking for all the dead bones, you would think to yourself, how dare you? What are you doing touching a masterpiece? This is the classic Mona Lisa. You better leave it alone. Sounds like a lot of Baptist churches. We've never done that before. But you also know this to be true. If you touch a masterpiece, it's no longer a masterpiece. It's just a piece, isn't it? Well, the same is true with our salvation. The writer of Hebrews has told us over and over and over this one thing. The work of Jesus is done. It's finished. Don't touch it. Leave it alone. If you mess it up, it's no longer a masterpiece. A masterpiece formed by the hand of God. And no, I'm not comparing Da Vinci's hand to God's hand. Don't go there. But I want you to know that perfect atonement was made for imperfect sinners. And as a result, you would not take a marker, would you, to Jesus' finished work and try and draw on it and make it done. But a lot of people do that, don't they? They say, Jesus, I like you, but I think I got to do this as well to get to heaven. Or Jesus, I know you say you died for all my sins, but I'll throw in a few Hail Marys just to, make, just to sweeten the pot a little bit. Or I'll serve you in all the committees and all the things and bring the best potluck dinner and help you. 
Oh, by the way, if you were in Sunday school this morning, small groups, that's exactly what Jehu did. Jehu was commissioned by God to do one thing. It was to clean the physical house by the sword of Israel's enemies within the camp. But at the same time, Jehu stopped short of following God with his whole heart. He followed God until it was convenient and he got what he wanted. And then as soon as that happened, he went right back to what he knew. Friends, if you take any part of God's gospel and color it with your own crayons and make it your own, you poison the water that is perfect that Jesus shed his own blood for. Be very, very careful. Our big idea today, our scripture today reminds us of that. And Amy will put that up for us. Psalm 51, 17, David, after Bathsheba wrote, he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God doesn't need anything you bring to the table. He's already brought himself to the table and laid it bare for you once for all. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 starts this continuing theme of the finished work of Christ. John 19, 30, it is finished. Not he was finished, the work is finished. No more offerings, no more sacrifices, no more priests, no more animals, no more blood. It is done. And so the big idea today is simply this. When your Savior says it is finished, well, he meant it, didn't he? And that means you can live by the Holy Spirit and his grace in that same power wherever you are today. Because Jesus wants your obedience, not your adding to his masterpiece, which is his son's salvation. In other words, he wants you, not what you have to offer. That's not always what we want, is it? Well, Jesus, I came to offer you these things. I'm so good at this. I'm so good at that. He wants your heart. Do you remember when King Saul was in 1 Samuel 15, told not to do anything until Samuel came? And like most people, he was watching his clock or the sundial or whatever they had in those days. Where's Samuel? Where's Samuel? Where's Samuel? And he started sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing. And Samuel shows up in God's providence right as that happens. And what did he tell Saul? He said he didn't care a lick about what you offer him on this altar. He wants exactly what is in here. Friends, the finished work of Christ means you can rest completely in the fact that within Christ, you are everything God wants you to be as long as you trust in him. You don't have to try and outsmart him, outdo him, impress him, because there's no sacrifice that God calls you to make that can make the pot even sweeter. The sweetest pot that was ever given, if you wanna use that language, was that Jesus died for you. But every other place and every other person tries to add to it. I want to break that down today. Why three truths about the sacrifices and the finished work of Christ I want you to see today, and that's where we're headed. This morning, the first one is this. We'll find it in verses one to four, the inferiority, the inferiority of the old sacrifices. I think you see this very clearly from the text. The first way he shows us here that Christ's finished work is greater is that everything else before it was and had a purpose, but has now been shut down because Christ has come. Notice verse one again. For since the law was but a what? A shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of its reality. What he's saying is, is everything in the law was a shadow. It is a masterpiece that was completed in Christ. The law pointed to Christ, but it was not saving. Remember, it was a covering, a temporary covering. And he says, the shadow of good things to come. Well, what was to come? Christ was to come. Christ was the one who was coming. Not another sacrifice of an animal, but a sacrifice of the Son of God. And for about 1,400 years, give or take, depending on your math, from the time it was instituted with Moses till the time of Jesus dying around AD 30 or 33, everything else was done away with. 
you imagine being these Hebrew Christians he's writing to again and hearing that again and again and again and again. Can I put it in very simple terms? It's like telling a Catholic they don't need to go confess their sins to a priest. It's like telling a Mormon they don't have to go to the Mormon temple here anymore. They can just believe in Christ. It's like telling a Muslim that they don't have to go and literally, sir, a nine, chapter nine, go and kill the infidels because that's not how you get to heaven anymore. Do you see the reality of that? Or it's like telling a Baptist just because your membership name is on a roll doesn't mean you're any more saved than the guy who's walking down the street out there. Ooh, we went there, yes. You see how practical this gets. The inferiority of the sacrifices, everything pointed to Christ. And it says in verse two, and he goes on to say, uh, excuse me, in verse one, it says, it can never by the same sacrifices offered every year make perfect those who draw near. He makes it very plain. They can never, there's no exceptions here. Don't you, didn't you hate teachers who when you did all the hard work, I know some of you were super overachievers in school, you did all the hard work, but then Joe Bob, who just needs to pass because his mom's gonna kick him out of the house, comes up and begs the teacher for extra credit and the teacher gives him that extra credit because he's really persistent. And then you think, I've been here the whole time and I've done all the work and he still gets to pass and hasn't done a thing all year. Well, friends, when it comes to Christ, there are no exceptions. There's no begging. It is go through Christ or it's nothing. They, they can't make you perfect. For God to accept you, you have to be perfect. He doesn't grade on a curve. He's not Santa Claus. He doesn't just say, oh, you've been, you, I'm making a list, checking it twice, gonna find out who in church is naughty or nice. Jesus is summing. No, that's, that's worldly. God isn't making a list and checking it twice. He already knows not who's naughty or nice. We're all naughty outside of Jesus Christ. We're all evil. We're all bent. Our wills are at enmity with God. God doesn't have a balance of good and bad. God is so holy, sinless, and perfect that no one can come into his presence and live before him except that those who are utterly perfect. You know from James chapter two, church, that one sin is enough to bring the whole law under you, to put the whole law of judgment upon you. And I'm just the messenger here, but the truth is, is that these sacrifices, he said, can never make you perfect. Look, we have no comprehension of how holy he really is. If you have never read the classic book by R.C. Sproul, who, those of you who know, it's been almost six years since he passed away. Where has that time gone? If you've never read Holiness, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul or Holiness by J.C. Ryle, you need to get those books. They're classic books that summarize this. But isn't it something that God would even allow us to draw near? Notice that. Even in the end of verse one, he says that even there are those people who draw near. There are some really sincere people in this world who draw near. But just because you draw near does not mean you go through the proper way of drawing near. You can draw near and be sincere, but be a million, billion miles away from really who God is. So he goes on in verse two. He says they're inferior in what they can't do, but he also says, look, uh, he says, otherwise, would, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? In other words, he says, let me reason with you. He said, look, if Jesus is not the once for all offering, why do they keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again? Again, I'm gonna put this in very simple terms. Why do Baptists walk an aisle at some churches multiple times in their lives and get rebaptized five to seven times? Why do Catholics keep going back over and over to take a mass that supposedly saves them? Why do Mormons keep going to the temple up here? You fill the blank. We all have superstitions. But what he says is, is that if Christ is enough, then stop it. Cut it out. It's either he's enough or he's not. He's either sacrificed once for all or he didn't. But cut it out. 
But they had to keep offering it over and over and over because it didn't work. The holidays are coming. Do you have your diet plan ready yet? Because you know what's going to happen, don't you? All those sweets are coming. Your belt buckle's going to expand, amen? And then you're going to say, boy, I wish I wouldn't have done that again. Oh, that's a silly example, but you know what I mean. You know what's coming. You know what's to be expected. You know what's going to come to you, but you keep doing the same thing over and over and nothing changes. I think they call that insanity, don't they, in the secular world? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting the same result. A different result, excuse me. Our, our thesaurus, Miss Sonia, knows this very well. So what is the point? Look at verse 3. What is the point of bringing them in? Well, he tells them it's a reminder. You notice in verse 3, he says, it is a reminder in these sacrifices year over year. The only thing they could do was not bring redemption, these old sacrifices. All they could do is remind you about the fact that you are not forgiven through them. Friends, I'm grateful as we take the Lord's Supper later on, we symbolically remember what our Savior did for us, but we remember that his person, who he was, and the work that he did has completely washed away all of our sins. We don't have to guess about him. Does he love me? Does he love me not? He did love you. He gave his life for you. So verse four, that's why he says very clearly, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's it. That doesn't surprise you because we don't have a cattle herd out here at, back in the bus barn somewhere. That's not the lowing that you hear at times. That's the rumbling of stomachs. But I'll tell you this, it doesn't take away sins. Nothing does. So what should be our reasons to pursue holiness? Amy, if you just want to put these up. So if, if this is true, then why should we pursue holiness? I mean, if it's taken away, our sins are done. If everything has been uh, uh, given to us and we have the one sacrifice of Christ, then why keep going? And I'm taking a lot of scripture here. And these are two slides, and I'll go through them quickly. Why go through and pursue the holiness of God? If God's already set me apart, if God's already saved me, if I'm forgiven of all my sin, then why? Why pursue holiness? First off, because it honors God. And isn't that why we're here today? We're here today to honor God above all things, above an American flag, a Christian flag, above a country, above our, our, our fellowship. It's really about honoring God and magnifying Christ. That's what we're here to do. If you're visiting with us, we don't do a lot of things right here, including the pastors. Bless us. But one thing I pray we do well is we lift up Jesus Christ. And that's what we're here to do. Imperfectly, but that's what we're here to do. Second reason you pursue holiness and what Christ has done for you is it builds up the church and it bears witness to the lost. Part of the reason that people know you're a Christian is because the way you live. Now, let's be clear. You need to share the gospel by what you say. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But the way you live your life points people back to why you're living the way you're living or why you're trying to do it. It's because you want Christ to be exalted. You want his church to be exalted. And it's a witness to the lost. You also adorn the gospel. You know what adorning is, isn't it? It's putting on, it's showcasing the gospel and the evidence of its power. The reason that you are not the same person you are today is because God has not given up on you yesterday or in this moment, keeps making you more like Jesus. That's the reason. Why do you pursue holiness? First, it's for God's glory. He builds the church and adorns the gospel. But let's flip to the next slide here. I gave you five. That's a whole sermon in itself, I know. But if you wanna walk according to God's design and flourish as a spiritual person, you wanna seek God's holiness. First Peter 1 tells us that God reminded us to be holy because he is holy. What does that mean? 
That means in the things you watch, the things you do, and I'm not being legalistic. I've said it before. My generation, we grew up in the Young Restless Reform Movement. We grew up in a time when, when we got back to the roots of, of the Puritans and all the, the classic guys who have long since been dead, who have been older than Leon, but still, you know, died way before Leon. Leon, I pick on you every week, I know. But a lot over the times, we reclaimed a lot of good theology, but we started to say, I don't want, oh, that's legalistic. Ooh, ooh, don't tell me not what to, well, I can watch what I want to watch. As long as my thought life is okay, my heart's going to be just fine. no. Your thought life, your heart life, your action life all has to be brought in together to flourish because he's holy and we're not. Because he gave himself one time so you don't have to sacrifice a thousand times, everything about you is dedicated to him. And it keeps friends from having to feel like jerks confronting you. When you're pursuing holiness, we don't have to ask those awkward questions. Are you living for Christ? Or send you a letter that says, are you walking with Christ? Or call you up? Hey, we don't know where you are spiritually. Do you see why the inferior sacrifices have no power? In Christ, you can live a holy life. In Christ, you are complete. That's what it is. I think everyone's got those written down. We'll put, leave that up for just another second. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to remind you today, you are unholy. But because of Christ, if you turn to him, you can become holy and forgiven of all your sins. That is number one. Second point I want to make today is the prophecy of the new sacrifices. Why is Christ better, the finished work better? Because of the prophecy of the fulfilled sacrifices. Look at verse 5. Have your Bible open. Verse 5 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. Now, I want you to notice something here. We read Psalm 40, and Pastor Nelson read that in its entirety. Psalm 40 was written by who? David. And it was written about whose life? David's life, but in those words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we see a little glimpse. We get to eavesdrop. We get to uh, put the little uh, recorder in the phone. What do they call that? The uh, You tap the line, so to speak, into a conversation between the Father and the Son. And I want you to notice what verse 5 of Hebrews 10 says as we get to Psalm 40. Consequently, based on all those verses, when Christ came into the world, who said? He said. Who's the he here? It's Christ. What? Christ said something before he came into the world? Yes. What did he say? Sacrifices and offerings. You, who's he talking to? He's talking to the Father. The Son is talking to the Father. You have, to put in technical terms, an inter-Trinitarian dialogue. Does that make sense? That is not something from Star Trek. That's not something from Star Wars or Spaceballs. That is truth. What we mean is that the Son was speaking to the Father. This is probably before, contextually, right before he came into this world. How did he come into this world? Well, he tells you, sacrifices you have not desired, but a what you prepared for me? A body. A body born of a virgin, born under the law, born at just the right time, Galatians 4. And what he says is, in burnt offerings, verse 6, in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure, Father. Jesus knows why he came. God started the law. The Father started the law. It was not a mistake. It was a shadow pointing to Christ's coming. And, but it was all inferior. But a body you prepared for me. A body without an earthly father. Or he would be a sinner. He would have inherited Adam's sin. Don't forget that. Jesus was born of a virgin because he did not get the sin you and I get when our daddy becomes our father with our mother. Does that make sense? We do not have in Jesus the inherited sin. 
of Adam. It is a body without a sin nature. It had physical flesh, but as he was lifted up on that cross and died, being perfect as he was, he absorbed, he became our propitiation, the appeasement of our sin and judgment was founded in Christ. And that's why he says in verse 6 to the Father, you have taken no pleasure in burnt offerings. So the writer of Hebrews is basically saying this, look, if I haven't told you for the millionth time, the old stuff doesn't matter anymore. Let's go to Jesus himself and see what he said to the Father. He's basically putting the slam dunk, icing on the cake argument right here. He's putting the nail in the coffin of the whole argument. Don't listen to what I have to say. Listen to what Jesus said to the Father so many years ago. And he goes on in verse 7. Again, Jesus speaking here to the Father. Behold, I have come to do your will. Can I ask you, Christian, what in the world did Jesus come to do? Amy, if you want to put, go ahead and put up that next little bit, that's fine. What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came because the law could guide and the law, you could even say, restrained us. But Jesus came because the law could not rescue, it could not reconcile, and it could not transform us. What did Jesus come to do? Let's listen to his own words. Luke 19.10, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said in Mark chapter nine, he came to serve and give his life a ransom for what? For many. Matthew 121, the angel said to the shepherds on that hill, he came to save his people from their, their many bad financial choices. He came to save his people from all the bad thoughts they had about themselves. No, he came to save his people from their sins. That's what he came to do. And you notice in verse 7 there, this prophecy being fulfilled in Psalm 40 in the life of Christ, he says, behold, I've come to do your will. That's the will. That's what he came to do, as is written for me in the scroll of the book. What is that? The scroll of the book. Well, there's two options here. This could be God's eternal decrees, his purposes recorded that would come to pass. But I think the argument here is stronger that this word of the book in, in Hebrews 10, 7 and Psalm 40, verse 8 is the prophecies that have come to be fulfilled in Christ. Notice what he says. As has been written of me, of who? Of Christ in the scroll of the book. In other words, everything of the prophets, everything of, the, uh, of, all the, uh, of all the words that are said about Christ came to be fulfilled in Christ. Josh McDowell has that old illustration. Some of y'all remember Josh McDowell, don't you? Evidence that demands a verdict. He's getting older, you're getting older, and that book is really getting older. He's not an old dead guy yet, but he's close, right? But he had an old illustration that if you took a little piece of paper or a little coin or something and put a red X on one side of it, and went to the state of Texas and buried all sorts of the same objects, basically up to your ankles. And you were given one chance to find that one coin across the whole state of Texas. The odds of finding that were, I'm looking at Andy Nisley, my smart man here, the many gazillions, I don't know what word there is for that. The odds of finding that one coin buried in Texas somewhere when it's stacked up to your ankles is just astronomical. That is the amount of, basically, statistics it would take for Jesus to fulfill all the prophecies that he did. But praise God, Christian, he did for you and for me. Why is his superior sacrifice, once for all sacrifice better? Because it was predicted long ago and it happened for you. 
The prophets were not Nostradamus. Sometimes on the History Channel you see Nostradamus predicts the end of the world. They still have those at the checkout counter. We do Walmart pickup, so we don't go to the checkout counter as much anymore. They still have those weird prophecy things, those uh, the Inquirer magazines, is that what it's called? You know what I'm talking about? Five reasons in 2022 Jesus is going to return or, you know, whatever. Nostradamus predicted it, whatever. The prophets predicted Jesus would come as he did, and that was always the dialogue between the Father and the Son because he knew we'd need a Savior, and he gave himself for us. May God be praised. Last point is this, number three, the inferiority of the sacrifices, this prophecy of the new sacrifice, and the superiority, finally, of the new sacrifice. Look at verse 10. He goes on to say, he says, and by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. I want to give you four accomplishments quickly that Jesus did for you on the cross. And we'll go over these slide by slide as we go through. The first one here is found in verses 10 through 13. He says that on the death of Christ being the superior sacrifice that you were sanctified. And by that will, by the will that God had in Christ for his son, Father had for his son, equal as they are in the Trinity, was sanctified through that. What does sanctification mean? Big word. Impress your friends. It means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be uh, made holy. And God is holy. And to come into his presence, you have to be holy as well. Not holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, but holy, H-O-L-Y. You need to be set apart. And if you are God, you get to set the standards. Holiness means without guilt. It means without moral blemish. It means perfect in all your ways. It means all those things. And when you believe on Christ, Christ has done three things for you to set you apart. And verse 11 unpacks this too. And every priest will stand daily at the service, repeatedly offering the same sacrifices, which never take away sins. But verse 12, when Christ had offered once for all a sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When you came to Jesus Christ, he positionally sanctified you. He set you apart. He put you on his team. Can I use that loose language? You're now part of his kingdom. You're part of his people. You are positionally sanctified, meaning he has saved you and he now sees you as the father sees you now as he sees his son, perfect and righteous. You're set apart. You're sanctified once for all. We don't believe in multiple baptisms of the Holy Spirit. We don't believe you have to speak in tongues and jump up and down the aisles and meow like cats or whatever they do. You don't have to be a holy roller. There has been one holy God and he wholly set you apart one time and said, you're mine. That's it. Oh, but guess what? You don't need daily sacrifices, but the Holy Spirit is gonna daily work in your life to make you more like him, to make you appreciate, to make you, to honor him in all that you have. But through this, God had to work on your heart. You were dead in your sins, but in Christ, you've been made alive. And now there's this continual uh, growing and this continual growing. First Thessalonians 4.3 is the will of God that you be sanctified. So many young people come up over the years and say, man, what does God want for my life? God wants you to be holy and set apart for him. That's it. Let him fill the details. Who am I going to marry? I don't know. Am I going to get married? I really don't know. What's she going to look like? I really don't know. But I know if you follow Christ, that's what matters at the end of the day, whether you're married or not, single, widow, whatever you are. But someday he's going to glorify you to make you perfectly as Christ is. 
You're already perfect. You're, you're set apart. You're wholly forgiven. But all that's in this world will pass away. And on that day, look at verse 13. We are waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. On the day when Jesus returns and sets up his authority, you will be as he is. You will not be God, but you will be in his kingdom. You will be sinless. All the, all the great words we say at funerals and revelation, every tear will be wiped away, etc., will come to fruition. And all God's people said, amen. That's what Christ did for you. That's why he's superior. An animal never did that for you. But notice the second thing here that happens. Not only does he sanctify you by the cross, he also secondly, look at verses 14 and 15, and Amy, if you'll go on to the next one on this one, he also perfects you. He also perfects you. He says in verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You have been perfected. Boy, if I had every class where I got bad grades, if I could have my teacher say, press one button and everything would be perfect on your grades for the rest of your life, I would have said, amen, I'm going to go run some more, go whatever I did at those days, just go have some fun. But he's perfected you. You are perfected because Christ being the perfecter came and offered himself once for all. We receive a standing and acceptance and access and a righteousness from God that cannot come from anyone else but God himself. There is a perfection that comes. Thirdly, and this is a little longer point, but thirdly, he perfected you, he sanctified you by way of the cross. He also, number three, regenerated you. Regenerated you. I used to raise hermit crabs as a kid. You know hermit crabs? Those crabs they had at a pet store you can buy for like $5, and they outgrow their shells at times. I can remember several times as a kid stepping on the hermit crab the wrong way, losing a claw, you know, and you think, is that hermit crab done? Nope. And within a short amount of time, that hermit crab had a new claw on him. It regenerated. It came back. It literally just came back. You've never seen that. I'm not suggesting you go to your local pet store and step on a claw and see what happens. But friends, it looked like dire situations. Eventually, we got into birds, and that's a whole other story. But I remember my mom saying, we're never giving you hermit crabs again because you always step on their claws. But I always said, Mom, but they always grow back. And she said, we're getting you birds instead. Praise the Lord. Friends, you and I were so dead in our sins, there was nothing that we could do to bring ourselves back. We were dead. And God, by his Holy Spirit, in a much greater example than hermit crabs losing their claws and growing back, had to regenerate your heart. He had to take the paddles of his spirit and shock you into life so that you were given spiritual life you never had before. And that only comes by his grace. Look at verse 15. He says, and the Holy Spirit bears witness to this, saying, this is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law on their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. God took what you could never take in your heart and your mind, all the head knowledge, and he turned that into heart knowledge that made you and prompted you and showed you your sin so that Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel, all the prophecies would be fulfilled, that you'd have a fleshy heart, not a stone-cold heart, and he made you and saved you. He took you from a dead man and made you an alive person. 
I've never been at a funeral, I've shared before, I've never been at a funeral where I've yelled their name in pig Latin, Spanish, Greek, Hebrew, whatever language I might try and speak in the moment and say, hey, you come back and they've risen up. Could God do that? Yes, he absolutely could. But friends, you were so dead that God himself had to call your name and raise you up to life to save you from your sins. And praise God, he remembers them no more. Last thing we will end here is there is remission for your sins. There's sanctification because of the superior sacrifice. There is remission. There is perfection and regeneration, but especially number four, remission. He says, I will remember them no more. The good news is, is that judicially, legally, your sins are never brought up before. I mean, think about that for a second. What does it mean that God remembers no more? Does God have amnesia all of a sudden? Does he have a, a, a does God have a senior eternal moment? Does God forget where he puts his keys now? No. I want you to know this. The good news is, is that God as a judge does not remember your sins anymore. They're never to be brought up again. They are as far as the east is from the west. They are to the depths of the ocean. God can't forget, but he's not gonna hold it against you. The bad news is, is that does not mean that the sins of God's people have vanished from his mind. God has forgotten. He knows things eternally. But I want you to know that God sees them, but he doesn't hold them against you. Because Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 18 tells you, because he has forgiven those and they're gone. If a person came up to me today and handed me a DVD of your life, do we still watch Blu-ray? What are we on these days? Streaming video of your life and played it on the screen, would you be embarrassed? Would you be sad? How many people would stay and watch all that you did? Or would you run out of here first? The reality is God remembers it no more. As we get ready to celebrate the supper after our next song, I want you to remember that. God gave you a superior sacrifice. Will you bow your heads with me this morning as we close out? Father, as we come to you, we have a, Father, you have given us a reminder through the book of Hebrews that repeated sacrifices bring nothing that the inferiority of the old law has passed away now in Christ. That, Lord, we thank you, Father, that you, Lord Jesus, and Father, that you have spoken together within the Trinity, and you gave us a glimpse of such in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, to remind us about the reason, Father, that you sent your Son, which is to save the world from sin. The mission has been accomplished. And, Lord, we thank you, that your son's sacrifice is superior to anything else that we have, that it regenerates us. Father, it removes our sin, it perfects us, and it sanctifies us all by the working of the Spirit in our lives, the blessed Trinity, the three in one. Father, we love you so much. As we come to sing this last song, may you be lifted high, we pray. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen.